Welcome to the Unbound Podcast with Liam Gray. Whether you are an insurtech enthusiast, traditional insurer, or just looking to understand how innovation will affect the insurance market, the Unbound Podcast is for you. From insurtech founders to leaders within some of the world's most forward-thinking insurers, each episode looks at the technologies and business models that are changing the future of insurance. Today I'm speaking with Dan White, Senior Partner at 90 Consulting. 90 are an insurance-focused consultancy that use Silicon Valley techniques for change and innovation and apply it to the insurance industry. In this episode, Dan shares his views on innovation labs. For some, these are seen as just a fad, and for others, they are a genuine conduit for innovation within corporations. During the discussion, he shed some light on the benefits of innovation labs, if done well, and provides some insight into cases where the results have been less than desirable. Hi Dan, and welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Before we start talking about innovation labs, what people are doing well, what some companies are doing badly, it'll be good to get a bit of your background and just hear a bit more about you and 90. So I grew up in Central Africa, moved to the UK when I was 16, um, and moved fairly quickly into the digital agency world as the, the dot-com bubble was building. I spent a lot of time in digital agencies working particularly for the insurance players, particularly personal lines players in the UK, like Direct Line, uh, Aviva, more than an LV. And then five years ago, established 90. So could you tell us a little bit more about what 90 actually does? So 90, we do new insurance ideas to market in 60 days. So we're very focused on helping insurers test uh, ideas, new ideas, quickly and inexpensively testing those against the market and against customer appetite, and then take the, the best of those to market very, very fast using a combination of design thinking, lean start, some of that, and agile technologies. So we describe it as bringing the, the techniques from Silicon Valley and, and the Shoreditch tech scene and applying them to what is essentially a, a fairly um, monolithic and traditional corporate scene. Okay, and one of the things that this monolithic corporate scene is actually doing at the moment within the insurance industry is developing innovation labs. Before we start talking about innovation labs in detail, would you be able to give a brief background on what an innovation lab actually is? Innovation labs are a response to an attempt to innovate and um, they're something of a fad. They're a fad that that we're not against, but um, there's been a, a movement of innovation labs over the last few years in particular. And um, we see there being four different approaches to innovation within insurance. And actually these these, uh, these approaches exist outside of the sector too. And the first is an attempt to, to build an innovative culture and mechanism inside the organization. The second is an attempt to build one at arm's length to the organization, which is normally a response to the first having gone badly. The third is to effectively give up on doing innovation um, within the organization or as part of it and to rely fundamentally on, on connections and investments in startups. And the fourth is to, is to uh, I use the ostrich analogy, is to put, uh, put the head in the sand and wait for someone else to do it. Now, the, um, the movement, the wave, the, the, uh, the vibe really across the insurance sector has been to try to build innovation practices internally, that's been difficult because fundamentally large corporates 
are not very good at being entrepreneurial. A whole bunch of very, very good and solid reasons which we're not challenging, but they're not fundamentally very good at um, innovating, at taking um, significant risks, at dealing with high degrees of uncertainty. And so the, 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 the corporate culture tends to um, get in the way of innovation happening internally. And so we see a move to a model where we say, right, let's set up a team at arm's length, let's put them in a cool office in Shoreditch, let's let them wear jeans, and let's let them innovate on our behalf. A part of the organization, but they're at arm's length so that the culture doesn't squash them. And that's fundamentally what the Innovation Lab is. It's a, it's a team, um, usually at arm's length from the rest of the insurance business, that is given the, the mandate and the responsibility to, to innovate on behalf of the organization. Okay. And from what you've seen, how successful have insurers been at actually doing this? And what are some of the success stories and what have you seen some insurers do badly? So there's been a lot of, um, a lot of hype, a lot of PR, a lot of gloss, um, some very sexy stories, some very cool and shiny prototypes that have come out of the labs. But in the last year, there's been a, um, something of a demise of the labs and uh, increasingly they are being unwound or closed down or discredited or called into question. Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples that are in the public domain. Um, Allianz X, uh, back end of last year, um, having run a program of, of incubation for new businesses within, within Allianz X for about three years, closed down that part of it and flipped to being just VC foot. So they moved from the Model 2 that I described to Model 3 and relying on startups to bring innovation. Uh, another example would be the Fast Track innovation team that, uh, that LV used to have. That was fairly quietly unwound about a year ago. And they were bumping into a number of issues which were very difficult to solve. A um, number of others, which I, I, I probably won't name some of these because they're not um, in the public domain, but on the grapevine, there's a, there's a very high-tech insurance innovation lab um, over in the States that's known within the business as, as in inverted commas, the travel agency because um, what it fundamentally appears to exist to do is to take top execs from across the globe and take them in and give them a good travel experience to visit a bunch of cool startups locally. Um, we know of another <clears throat> major global insurer who spent 60 million euros on um, a, a program of mobile app innovations. Um, they created a whole bunch of very cool apps, some real, so, so, some real innovation, but none of those apps had more than a thousand downloads. And so the, the program was quietly wound down. Um, and there are a number of other examples like this, and uh, I don't want to get into, into knocking these actually, because fundamentally there, there's some good to this. Mm -hmm. And what is that good? <laughs> What's the good to it? Well, the good, the good is that the, the insurance uh, industry in the sector needs to innovate. It, it has to um, fundamentally change from being a, a sector that has built one product, one set of products in exactly the same way for 100, 200, 300 years and start bringing new ways of doing things through fundamentally different products. Um, so there's a, there's a demand from the, uh, their customers for that innovation there's also this external pressure from the insurtech sector who are taking, they aren't bound by the same challenges and legacy and, and risk aversion. 
And so they're able to innovate in a much more radical way. So there's a, there's a survival element to this, but I don't want to overplay that too much. Um, there is the, it, even the labs that are struggling are creating good PR. And this is not to be undervalued. The, um, you think of, uh, of insurers like Aviva and their, their garages in, uh, in Shoreditch and over in Singapore, and that's created extremely good PR for them. Um, and, and other insurers are in the same sort of space. Now, we believe that possibly drives a couple of interesting outcomes, which regardless of whether the labs are successful at creating new products, may be good for the, the organization. The, the first of those is the analyst sentiment, so the market looking at these large PLCs, demanding innovation, and being given what they look for. And so they've been given an answer, they're, they're um, using that to um, as part of their valuation criteria, and so we, we would expect that there's some kind of share price impact, positive share price impact from the PR that comes with, with innovation labs when they're well promoted. The, the second thing that, um, that comes from labs, just the existence of a lab, is again one of perception. And that's where an insurer is looking to partner with a, a large, fast-growing, unicorn-style um, tech business. Those businesses are looking for innovative insurers. And so they will go to the insurers who look and feel and smell and taste most innovative. So an example there is Tencent over in Asia. They did a deal fairly recently with Aviva. Now, would they have done that same deal with an insurer that they didn't feel was uh, as innovative? They're a high innovation business. They saw high innovation business in Aviva, partly because of um, some of the, the PR that's coming out of the garages. And, uh, and that's a good thing, and it's to be applauded. Okay. So it's clear that innovation labs are good from a perception perspective. Mm -hmm. But if we look at tangible outcomes and companies that are looking at really getting tangible outcomes out of these innovation labs, who have you seen that are doing it very well? I know that you guys have worked together with Zurich, for example, to produce an innovation lab. What was crucial to include in that for it to be a success? Right. So the... Our analysis of the of the lab movement and the challenges that it's faced and sitting down and talking and having beers with a lot of people who are involved in these labs has pointed, in my mind, to, to three different killers of the innovation lab. The first is an, an exclusivity, a them and us kind of culture, a, a sense of we are the cool new digital guys who are going to change the world and save this organization whereas you are the, the dead old fuddy-duddies and you're on your way out. That, that has been one of the killers because fundamentally there are far more of the, the old fuddy-duddies than there are of, of, of the cool young things. And um, so they tend to kill the, the, the new maverick. The, the second thing is the, um, the failure to take ideas to scale. A powerful example of that would be the, the 60 million euro um, mobile app lab that I mentioned. A lot of cool apps none of them got to scale. So there's a failure to take ideas to scale, and in, in our view, um, that's to do with a, a misunderstanding of where innovation starts and stops. I'll come back to that. Uh, and the third killer is a failure to deliver a return on investment. So where people manage to make the case for significant spend on innovation, um, they're given a free reign to, to innovate, but if they're not generating a financial return from that innovation, 
uh, and very few have or are, then um, inevitably the CFO starts demanding answers, and that's the point at which the, the lab starts um, coming under scrutiny. So in in the in the work, uh, for example, that you referenced there with with Zurich, uh, we worked with Mark Budd, who is the the head of innovation for Zurich in the UK, and um, to, to build out what uh, they're calling the, the Zurich Innovation Foundry. We very deliberately went after those three killers. So the 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 essence, and I know Mark is happy for me to share some of this. The the um, the Innovation Foundry at Zurich does not do the innovation. It is not. A, a part of the organization to which Zurich has abrogated responsibility and handed over the keys to innovation. Uh, not at all. So what it does is rather it enables innovation by all across the business and takes the responsibility for, for that enablement, for some of the training, for building of the innovation culture, for equipping the, the people within the organization. So it's very much inclusive and an enabler. So that deals with the, um, the first of those three killers. Um, the second thing that uh, the second kind of key factor there is that we're using a, a 360 degree uh, view or lens across all ideas um, so that we're making sure that we're looking from the very, very beginning of evaluation of an idea in the foundry. We're looking at how viable commercially it is. We're looking at how viable operationally it is. We're looking at what the path to scale will be from the very first day of the very first um, ideation session. We're looking at um, the route to market, the go-to-market strategy, uh, and yes, we're looking at technology and data and user experience, but those things are, in many ways, they're, they're, the, they're the, the mechanisms through which an idea gets to market. They're not the, the return, or they're not the factors which determine the return on investment for the idea. So we're tackling that, um, that piece around uh, failure to deliver return on investment by taking that 360 degree view. Um, and finally, it's, uh, the foundry is extremely um, co-creative with customers in its outlook. So every idea that goes through the foundry from the very first day that it's in the foundry will have end users and customers in the room with the, the team that are looking at, at looking at and evaluating that idea. And customers are then um, involved through that process um, all the way through. So those are some of the, the, the the things that we're doing to try to avoid those 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 killers, those killer factors for innovation labs. Absolutely, and I sort of want to zero in on one of the points that you made with respect to it's not an outsourced innovation function. I've seen one of the biggest issues for innovation teams or innovation labs or any sort of outsourced innovation is actually taking that innovation and making sure that the leaders of each business unit actually buy into it. Would you love to go into a bit more detail on how you guys are hoping to overcome that and making sure that the business unit leaders actually own or have some sort of ownership of these ideas? Yeah, this is, um, this is where it gets more complicated. Um, and it's a question of maturity of the organization fundamentally. Um, Eric Ries, who is the author of The Lean Startup, released a book back end of last year called The Startup Way. And in that, he, he sets out a roadmap for how you build an innovation culture. And the very first step on that is to, is to start executing and, and bringing in some new ways of working. You then start to embed process and, and put some rigor around it, which is what we've been doing with Mark and the team at the, at the Zurich Innovation Foundry. But it's when you get beyond that then that you start to look at, how you, at changing 
and people's perceptions, people's expectations, people's understandings of their role. Uh, and we believe that we start at the middle management layer for that. There's, it, it's often quite easy to get top exec backing for innovation. It's usually quite easy to get some kind of grassroots sense of um, excitement or desire to participate, but it's the middle managers who manage both up and down in that mix. And so the approach we're, we're taking with the, the foundry at Zurich is to, um, is to target that layer of individuals, coach them, train them, equip them, build contracts with them that um, get them to release their members, the members of their teams who, who have submitted strong ideas, to release those members into the foundry for a period and to support them and, and to, to be highly understanding of, of what they're doing. So it's, it's, a, difficult, um, it's a difficult challenge. Um, it's one that will take two, three, four years, realistically. But there is a path and, and, a, and a bit of a, a roadmap to, to follow. Absolutely. And sort of finally on, on the innovation lab side of things, Zurich, as you mentioned, is a very large company and therefore have a lot of resources to put behind something like an innovation lab. Is it something that only large insurers can do or can smaller insurers replicate this in a different way? So we're a, a big believer in um, small is better here. Uh, so in many ways, the smaller the insurer, the, the easier it would be, we think, for them to be effective in, in innovation. There are a series of examples I could point you out. Just, just one would be um, the, the insurer at First Central, who are one of the more innovative and hungry uh, insurers that we see out there. They're new, they're not, they don't have the scale, and, and with that lack of scale comes an ability actually to be more innovative. Um, in my view, the, the smaller the organization, the hungrier they are typically for, uh, for innovation. And because they have smaller budgets and fewer resources, they have to be more disciplined. They have to be more effective. They have to prioritize the absolute cream of the crop ideas rather than having the, the capacity to go after the, the, the more mid-ranking ideas. Um, and so actually, no, we're, we're big believers in the notion that small insurers can innovate every bit as effectively, and if not, more effectively than the larger ones. Um, one example here would be, if we go back to Allianz X, um, extremely well-resourced, but for the first two or three years, it was a relatively small team that operated that, that, um, that incubator program. And they, they weren't sitting on huge budgets, um, it was it was more than millions, but it was not into the tens of millions, and um, they were reasonably effective through that period. Because of their effectiveness, a significant amount of additional money and resource was thrown at them, and within a very short period of time, actually, it caused a complete retrenchment back to this uh, a VC only mentality. So that's one example of more money and more resources, not necessarily. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily lead to more innovation. Fair. And this is slightly off topic, but there's something special about 90 that um, we haven't mentioned yet, and the clues in the title. So you guys are also a social enterprise. Would you be able to give a bit more detail on that? Of course. 
Um, so yes, we are a social enterprise, which means that we're a for-purpose company. We are uh, a for-profit business, and we're competing with uh, a number of large, um, large organizations and SIs out there. But um, fundamentally, our, our purpose is different. So we believe that the insurance sector um, and insurance as a product exists fundamentally as a social good to society. It allows people to take risk as entrepreneurs and it allows people to be protected when the worst happens to them. So we find it um, frustrating that the insurance sector has become a little static um, in its ability to, uh, to innovate and respond to market uh, conditions and changes. So our mission, if you like, is to, is to help insurers become much more nimble, much more um, uh, able to, to take risk, to learn rapidly, to stay connected to their customers. And that's fundamentally why we do what we do. Uh, and off the back of that then, the, the profits that we make from um, our activity in the insurance sector, we're cycling 90% of those profits, hence the name, back into social causes. So that goes into a foundation and out to a series of charities which are primarily dealing with um, extreme poverty in developing countries. And one of the, the happiest moments of my year is when I get to uh, reach out to our insurance clients, uh, people like Mark at, at Zurich, and say, uh, and give them the equivalent of the, the Waitrose green tokens and give them a, an opportunity to, um, to steer where that charitable giving goes. Um, so that's, uh, that's fun and, and a little bit different about us. That's fantastic and a great initiative on your end. Last but not least, if anyone's interested in finding out a little bit more about 90 or getting in contact with you, how can they do that? Probably the easiest thing would be to um, start with our website, which is 90.co.uk, but I'm very happy for people to reach me on dan at 90.co.uk. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Dan. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. Innovation labs definitely have their merits, but there are many barriers to overcome in order to make them succeed. I think the most important factor is making sure that a lab is not seen as a place that only a chosen few within an organisation can be part of. Instead, it needs to be inclusive from the very beginning. As Dan mentioned, targeting the middle management is key, and pursuing this middle-out approach instead of top-down or bottom-up could be the best way of innovating within large corporates. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and leave comments. We really want to reach as many people as possible with what's happening in the insurance industry, and there are no greater advocates than you, our listeners.